Uh, my name's Aaron. I'm the Rochester campus pastor, and whether you're joining us from Webster or here in Rochester or you're online, we're just thrilled that you're with us. This is week five of a series called Moses, and we're walking through the life of a leader that God used in absolutely huge ways to shape not only um, Israel, but also our world today. And I'm excited to be continuing in that um, story this morning. And I want to walk you through a scenario that I hope is familiar to you. I hope I'm not alone in this. Um, and that is, uh, okay, let's say you're out, whatever, you're at the grocery store, you see somebody that you haven't seen in a while. You take a moment and you kind of recognize them through the mask. That's itself impressive, right? You see them, the eyes light up, you're like, hey, and you go to give them a greeting and you give them a nice big what? right? Like that's the moment. You go in for the hug and you're like, no, COVID handshake. No, not that elbow. No, that's weird. Oh no. (laughs) And like, I don't know what kind of an interaction occurs, but it's always terrible. And it always spreads more COVID than if you had just decided to hold your breath and give them a hug, right? Because it's just like, oh, it's so awkward. You feel like, I'm like, okay, I'm doing the calculus. I'm like, underlying medical conditions. Do they live with their grandparents? I don't know what they think about this. I don't know what I think about this. Can we hug? Is it worse to reject their hug or spread COVID? I don't know. (laughs) And so I just, it's so terrible. I don't know if you, I just hate those moments so much. I'm just, it makes me feel so weird because it feels like you are transported to the moment in every friendship where you don't know where you really stand with the other person. You're like, I don't know, are we huggers? Are we bro huggers? Are we handshakers? Are we just like, see you guys? Like, we don't know where we are. And so you're kind of testing each other out. And normally you get past that phase in a relationship, but right now you're not past it with anybody. You just don't know how to interact physically. I don't like it. Um, and that's all I had to say today. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but it reminds me of where we are in Israel's relationship to God, okay? We're walking through the life of Moses, and they just got out of slavery, okay? They just crossed the Red Sea. Egypt is defeated. It's this awesome moment. But I think they're entering into a pretty awkward phase with their relationship with God, where they don't really know how to read him yet. They're trying to, like, figure each other out, and they're in the awkward, like, it's worse than a COVID elbow bump right now for them in the nation of Israel. And if you want to follow along, we're going to be in Exodus 15, 16, and 17, and I'm going to open my iPad and try to remember my passcode. Boom, got it. You were nervous. You should have been nervous because I got nothing to say without this thing. Um, But anyway, they're in a very awkward transition period. They're trying to figure out who God is, how to interact with them. And honestly, they're heading into the desert right now, following a God that honestly they don't know much about. And they're following this God into the desert who just released them from 400 years of slavery. It's the only life they've ever known, all that their eight times great grandparents have ever known. And as they're following this God into the desert, they've got no supplies. They got no travel experience. They have no idea really even where they're going. And so this is a pretty weird kind of like tenuous moment in their relationship with God. And so God, Israel and God are both trying to read the room, like, where are we? Are we cool? We haven't had like that DTR moment yet where we know what the status is. And so they're trying to read the other one and figure it out. I would say it this way, that right now Israel is testing God's capacity to take care of them. And God is testing Israel's obedience to him. That's what's happening, kind of this back and forth exchange. And we're going to see that exchange play out over the course of three consecutive stories in Exodus 15, 16, and 17 that all kind of have the same formula that they follow. And in all three of these stories, the people of Israel are wondering, what are we going to eat? And what are we going to drink? Which, honestly, 
they're not being picky. <laughs> they're just walking across the desert and they would prefer to not die of starvation or of thirst. So they want to eat and drink, which seems reasonable. And as we walk through this morning, it might not feel like we're as focused on the person of Moses as we maybe have been in the other weeks. But it's because we're, we're kind of taking a moment to look and take a peek at the people that God has called Moses to lead. I mean, he's, his leadership, as it's happening, it's not happening in a vacuum. Okay, there are particular truths and realities and idiosyncrasies of these people. And we, the better we understand their quirks and their situation, the better we'll understand what Moses had to walk through as a leader throughout his life. Um, so we're going to be zeroing in on how God is leading Moses by taking a look at the people that Moses is leading in these three stories. Um, and in each of these three moments or scenes, um, the people of Israel are in need of something from God, and they are perfect moments. Since they need God, it's a perfect moment for God to test them, to see what their loyalty is and what their allegiances are. Um, and I think in the end, as we look at all three of these stories, we'll be able to learn a couple of lessons together. Um, and as always, there are things that we wish we could dive into that aren't the scope, part of the scope of this morning. So if you uh, listen to our podcast during the week, you'll be able to hear us further dialogue about some of the things that we simply wouldn't have time for um, in a normal morning. But let's look at scene number one, okay? This is in Exodus 15. However you access the Bible, go ahead and get there. Exodus 15, we're going to start in verse 22 as we look at scene one. So the second half of verse 22 says this, For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. Okay, so right off, the, right off the bat, we've got a problem here for the people of Israel. They travel a few days, they don't have any water, no surprise, that's not sustainable. So they mosey up to this place, it looks like it's got water, they're feeling good, then they try it, and it's undrinkable. Not a good scenario. Israel is not thrilled. So they start complaining. Verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Okay, that's the first time they asked this question. It will not be the last time that they asked this question. And each time they ask a question like this, it starts one of the three cycles of testing where Israel is kind of poking Moses and ultimately poking at God and testing whether their leader and their God can provide the solution to the problem that they face. In this case, can he provide water? Okay, that's the thing that they're testing. And this is a pretty big deal, right? Can God come through for us in this big moment? And what do you know? In verse 25, Moses cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. Now, I know that sounds a little crazy, but God's doing something miraculous here. He makes the water drinkable again, and that's awesome, right? God comes through for the people of Israel. He shows them, proves to them that he can overcome their obstacles and provide them with what they need. He passes their test. And wouldn't you notice, God responds immediately with a test of his own in verse 25. And there, after he just provided water, the Lord issued a ruling and an instruction for them. And put them to the test. The test. If you were to read through 15, 16, and 17 of Exodus, just highlight every time you see the word test. It shows up a bunch. God is issuing a challenge to the people of Israel. And if you were to read through it, he basically just says, obey me and I'll continue to provide for you and make sure bad things don't happen. And implicit in that challenge is, but if you don't obey me, then things are not going to go as well. Okay? That's the challenge that he issues. And so what I, what I want you to understand here is that the water that he provides them with was not the point. 
Okay, the water was not the point. God had a bigger goal in mind. I think you could say it like this, that in this case and throughout, God provides what they are in need of in order to see what they are made of. He provides what they are in need of in order to see what they're made of. God is not just a portable drinking fountain. And we're going to see that throughout this story. He is testing the hearts of the people of Israel and drawing them closer to himself. And seeing ultimately what they're actually committed to. And so that reality will play out. That scene one in two and three, it's going to be the same thing. And even the next couple stories after what we'll cover today. Um, We have two more cycles of basically the same thing. Let's move on from scene one to scene two and see what happens here. This is in Exodus 16, verse one. Um, That says this in verse two, which is where we'll start. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So here we go, the same cycle. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. I mean, there we sat around pots of meat. We ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Okay, so we're in cycle two. We're starting to get the pattern here. This one is not about water. It's about food. And they're complaining, wishing they were back in Egypt and like, oh, I wish we were slaves again, which is like, really? That's what you want? But anyway, it's easy to judge them. But, and we, you know, we'd be like, guys, stop complaining. Like, it's going to be fine. But I would say, give them some slack, right? They, what they don't have right now is food. They're hangry. I know how you get when you're hangry, and it ain't pretty. So let's cut them a little bit of slack and recognize this is a reasonable request. They just want some food. So how does God respond? Well, in verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, which sounds pretty legit. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will Test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. It's happening again. This is round two. Israel needs food. God's going to provide. But it comes with the open acknowledgement that this is a test of their willingness to obey God. They think that this is just dinner. It's not for God. It's a test of their loyalty. He's providing them what they are in need of in order to see what they're made of. And so what happens? Well, in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites and tell them at twilight, you will eat meat. And in the morning, you will be filled with bread. And then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. Boom. He does it, right? God provides the food that they need. They get meat and they get bread. And sometime I'd encourage you to really read chapter 16 of Exodus. And if you grew up in church, take off the lens of like, this is a familiar story and read it for what it is. Because it's straight up crazy, all right? God provides them with meat and bread in the weirdest way. First of all, they get their meat because like a zillion quail show up. I don't know, is it quails? Is it quail eye? I don't know what the plural of quail is, but there's a lot of them. And they kill them and eat them, and that's their source of meat, which is itself weird. And then bread comes in an even crazier way, all right? They wake up in the morning, and the ground is completely covered in something that looks like dew, But it turns out it's actually like magical elven wafer bread, which is awesome. If it's not awesome to you, you weren't paying attention. Okay, that's really awesome. There's magical bread all over the ground. And the Israelites are like, what is all this? And this sounds like a joke, but I'm being serious. They looked at it, and in Hebrew, they were like, what is this? Or manhu. That's how you say it in Hebrew. Manhu. They're like, manhu. What is this? And in verse 31, they decided to name it. And the people of Israel called the bread, we usually say manna which to us means like this wonderful provision of perfect food. But in Hebrew, we're like mana. So remember, they're like, man who? Man, huh? 
I'm not joking. That's literally what they did. Like, look at the footnote in your Bible. It'll say, mana looks, sounds like the word for what's that? Because they didn't know what it was. They gave it a little nickname. Mana. Because they're like, man who? Mana. And that's what they did. So it worked out. Um, but in the meantime, it tastes pretty good, which is nice. In verse 31, it was white like coriander seed, whatever that is. And it tasted like wafers made with honey. Honey, that's good, right? And I'm glad they liked it because God provided it for their food every day for the next 40 years. 40 years. I don't want to see any more complaining about dad always packs the same lunch for school, okay? 40 years of the mana. That's what they had. But this food, crazy food, comes with two rules. Rule number one for the, the food is only take as much as you need for one day and eat it all before you go to bed. Okay, that's rule number one for the Israelites. Remember, this is a test. It might seem arbitrary. It might seem random, but God is testing Israel. So they're only supposed to get one day's worth, eat all of it or dispose of it. Doesn't go so well. Verse 20. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, and it was full of maggots and began to smell. Big yikes, okay? That's disgusting. I'm assuming that's kind of a self-policing rule. Like, that won't be happening anymore because that's disgusting. But they have already failed the first part of God's test for them in providing the bread. They did not follow his rules. Not a good sign. What's the second rule? Well, the second rule is kind of like the equal and opposite of the first rule. Um, this rule was that on Friday mornings, they should collect two days worth of food so that on Saturday morning, they didn't have to collect anything. It would preserve and last through Saturday and be enough for them to eat for those two days worth. And if you're familiar with Jewish customs at all, it sounds like that's the Sabbath. And that's because it is. This is the Sabbath, the Shabbat, the rest cycle that God was in this passage for the first time formally instituting with the people of Israel is the one day of rest on the Sabbath, seventh day. God is setting a pattern for his people that they should rest in him. Unfortunately, this rule also does not get followed. Verse 27, nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Okay, they don't follow this rule either. We are 0 for 2 right now. In the first round, they hoarded stuff they weren't supposed to. In the second round, they don't hoard stuff they were supposed to. They cannot get it right. Um, and I know that this sounds pretty random. I get that or arbitrary, but we have to step back and realize that the whole point of this food was to set a rhythm where they had to depend on God. By collecting only enough as much as they needed for their daily bread, it was demonstrating trust that God would be there and provide for them tomorrow. And then by collecting extra on Friday, it showed that they could trust God by the fact that even when they were resting on Saturday, God was working on their behalf. So both of these rules are a test of their trust in God. God specifically said, I'm going to use this food to test you. And they're 0 for 2. Let me ask you, if you're the teacher, they're 0 for 2. How are they doing? Right? They're failing. They're failing this test miserably. It's not looking good. I think you could argue Israel is making a very strong case for why they need some extra help, some early intervention if they're going to get this relationship right. And that's actually what next week's going to be all about, is God instituting some rules and laws and guidelines through the law of Moses in order to help them form this relationship properly. Um, but that's scene number two. Did not go well. God provides. They failed the test. And in scene three, it only gets worse because this time in chapter 17, they put God on the hot seat and try to put him to the test. Never a good idea. But here, let's see how it goes. They have the audacity to do it. In verse one, it says this. 
Um, They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. So again, at this point, with three stories back to back, you're catching the pattern. This one sounds a lot like the first cycle, um, which actually we should go back and read it. In chapter 15, verse 23, it says they came to Marah. They couldn't drink the water. It was bitter. The people grumbled. And they said, what are we to drink? It's basically the same, right? Except there's a big difference. This time, rather than saying, what are we to drink? This time in 17, verse 2, they say, give us water to drink. Do you see that shift? Okay, it goes from being a question to being a demand. And that's going to signal to Moses that there is more going on here in this story. He's being a great leader throughout this section of it. And he recognized that the people of Israel are now outright testing God's capability. Entitlement has begun to, begun to sneak in to this group of people. And so Moses, again, he's a good leader. He calls them on it right away in chapter 17, verse 2. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you put the Lord to the test? Once again, another test. And this is great leadership by Moses. He sees right into their motives. He pushes right past the facade and he picks up on the fact that there is more going on here. Okay. This is not just about water. There's something, there's a question behind this demand that he's trying to peel away and get at. In fact, we hear what the actual beef Israel has with God in chapter 17, verse seven, later on in the story. It says, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, which is some more wordplay. But the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, here's their real question. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Look, this is not any longer about food or water. The question that they're actually asking, is God really with us as a nation? Is he really on our side? And man, what what a question, right? I mean, how many of us have asked that same question when the hard times of our life have hit, right? In this case, they're demanding water, but what they're really doing is testing to see if God is really with them. And of course, God is. God is absolutely with them, and he shows them that beyond a shadow of a doubt. In chapter 17, verse 6, he tells Moses kind of these weird instructions. He says, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. And so Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. God gives a weird instruction. Moses follows it. The people get the water that they need. And I love the little detail that it includes at the end there. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Like God's just flexing now, all right? He says, Moses, march right out in front of the leaders of your people. I know what they're really asking. I know you're saying, hey, God, are you really with us? Can we trust you? And this is God saying, I'm here. I am. I have got you. Now, will you trust me? Will you obey? God passes the test perfectly. He provides them what they need. And their question of, is God with us, was perfectly answered. And I actually want you to throw a little mental bookmark in this story. Uh, This is a pretty important one because Moses does great here, okay? He follows God's instructions. He nails it perfectly. He does what God asked him to do. But a very similar, like freakishly similar story is going to happen later in Moses' life. And Drew's going to cover that in a couple weeks. Moses doesn't do well in this case, and it ends up being one of the defining moments of his life. So remember this story when we come to cover a similar one later. It's going to be very important. 
Um, but we've just covered the three cycles. The three cycles, Israel wants something, God provides, there's a test involved, and each time God passes and Israel wildly fails. But what should we learn from those? Okay, I think there are two big lessons that we should be walking away from these stories, these cycles, ultimately recognizing. And the, I think the first big lesson for us to ultimately understand is that God is powerfully present with Israel. God is powerfully present with Israel. Um, this is really the ultimate burning question that's going on in their minds. Are you really on our side? It's what they're asking in their hearts, even though they're asking technically about water. There's more going on. Because they've just started to see God work miracles right? He brought them out of Egypt. The plagues happened. The Red Sea was parted. The Egyptians were destroyed. He brings them water and quail eye and water again. And he's going to defeat their enemies here in a couple of the next couple chapters. But they need, the question they're asking is, are these really just flukes? Like, are these one-offs? Or are we going to continue to see God work in this way? Because they spent over 400 years as a nation expecting God to show up with the miraculous and getting nothing but scars from the whips. So if I'm Israel, pardon me, but it's going to take me a hot second before I'm ready to trust this God just because he showed up a couple times. But what they are learning is that God is with them. He is proving with these cycles of questioning and trusting that he is not going anywhere. He is not going to abandon them. He will not allow them to be defeated. He is with them. And he's not just with them physically which he is, which is pretty cool. He's with them in power. He is showing up huge on repeat with miracles. And what they are beginning to believe is that God, Yahweh, the great I am, was not just the great I am he, or the great I was. He's the great I am and the great will be. He is going to stay with them. And man, if I'm Moses, that had to be a huge relief. <laughs> Because, I mean, the poor guy, honestly, he's doing his dead level best to just try to lead these people um, and do what God's asking him to do. But every couple of days, homie's running out of supplies and people are turning on him and they want to go back to slavery. Like, I don't understand. They're turning on him and questioning everything. But what a comfort for him to know that God is not just with the people of Israel generically. He is with their leader as well. Moses clearly took comfort in it. I mean, in chapter 16, um, as the people are griping and complaining to him, in, in chapter 16, verse 7, he even says to them, who are we? In other words, the leaders of Israel, who are we that you should grumble against us? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. In other words, he, he knows, look, no matter what leadership struggle I'm facing, and I got plenty of them, he knew that God was powerfully present with him and with the people of Israel as a whole. And it's that truth, God's powerful presence with his people that will carry them into their future. And whether it's the destruction of the Amalekites in the next chapter or the, whatever else is coming, God will be with them. And so God is powerfully present, but then the second lesson I think that we need to learn and understand is that God is shaping a nation. He's not just feeding them. And this is where it gets, I think, a little more personal for us. God is shaping a nation, not just feeding them. Because I think this goes back to our main point, that God was providing them with what they were in need of in order to see what they were made of. And so we start to put it, put it together, that the plagues in Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the water from a rock in the desert is never just about providing them with a Band-Aid to their problems. And let me tell you, Israel had some serious problems, right? They're facing slavery 
and starvation and all kinds of huge crisis situations. And every time God shows up in that crisis, it's still not about the crisis. He is testing them. He's evaluating their hearts. He is not in the business of simply being a food distributor for his people. He is shaping this nation into the people that he wants them to become because he has a much bigger goal in mind that they could not possibly understand. God had a promised savior, Jesus, who was to come through this group of people. Moses even says, a prophet like me will appear. Jesus, God is at work in a much bigger meta-narrative of the whole world, bringing it all together. It's never just about the Israelites' need for water. He is not content to throw them some food and point them in the direction of the promised land. And I'll say, I'll see you when I get there. He has a target on them and it is on their hearts, their loyalty, their allegiance. And no, Israel doesn't always do well. In fact, most of the time they don't. But even in those moments, his grace shows up and it keeps working with them no matter what. Because at this point, I believe what has happened is They, Israel, have accepted God's power to provide, but they have rejected his authority to control. They've accepted God's power to provide, but rejected his authority to control. Man, they were all about the food. Not so much about the food distribution plan, right? They wanted God's power, but they wanted it on their terms. What they missed is that the power that God has to provide for them in miraculous ways is the same power that gives him the authority to give restrictions to how they live their life. You can't have a God with all the authority necessary to control nature and miraculously provide you with every single thing you need in your life who does not come with the same authority necessary to control and dictate the way that we should live. And God was not here ever to meet meet their physical baseline of needs. It's never what he's about. He was present with them, but he was present with them to shape them into the nation he needed them to be. So let me ask you today, are you comfortable with accepting God's power to provide while rejecting his authority to speak into your decisions? Are we like Israel, comfortable praying to our genie in a bottle God? I mean, I'm there for that but assuming that he has no other purpose, no other intention, no other restrictions, no other desires for our life. Let me tell you this, God provides what you, what I am in need of in order to see what we are made of. What are we made of? In the midst of God's provision of food in our lives, of breath, of a job, of healing, of pregnancy, of a spouse, whatever God comes through with in your life or whatever God doesn't come through with in your life, every moment of provision or withholding, that is our loving Heavenly Father introducing another grace-filled opportunity to test our hearts and our true allegiance. I mean, not because he's some gotcha God who's like, yeah, I got you again with another failure. No, because he's not content to leave us in our sinful blindness. He is not content to allow us to simply live as happy, well-fed, comfortable people while sin rots our souls and drags us to hell. He is testing what we're made of because he wants us to transform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We have to come to a place where we recognize that every opportunity to complain every opportunity to ask for a prayer request of provision and every single thing in between 
is an opportunity to reevaluate our heart's deepest allegiance. Are you wanting to be drawn closer to the heart of God or ask simply for more from his hand? The people of Israel were pretty content with the food and the water, not recognizing that there was more going on. What are the areas of your life where God is providing, but you're taking that provision ultimately for granted? What are the areas of your life where God is providing what you're in need of to see what you're made of and you're not recognizing that there is a soul test at work? Where is he withholding provision with that same goal in mind? Will they complain? Will they turn to me in thankfulness? Will they be grateful for what I've already provided? How are we doing on that? Learning the lessons of obedience that in his grace he is providing us with. Are we like Israel, just simply moving forward with entitlement, blind to the fact that God is up to something much, much bigger? He was never just feeding his people. He was always shaping them. And that is true for us today. I long for us to believe the same thing about our everyday lives and needs as they eventually did. God is testing us. He is shaping us. He is molding us. Will we lean in and accept that grace? Will we reject his heart while asking more from the hand of our powerful God? I'm praying that we'll be a church who learns from Israel's mistakes and choose to follow God for God's sake, not simply for what our God is capable of providing. Would you pray with me? Lord, you have provided us with so much, so much. Whether it's spiritually, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You provided us with your son, a full picture of the redemptive story from Israel to us today. Your son died for our sins on the cross. He rose again, he conquered death. We have all the confidence we need in life now and life for eternity. But beyond that, you've placed us right now in a country that is the richest, most abundant country that has ever existed in the world. Even when we feel like we are in lack and there is much lack, it is still so much more than so many people around the world or throughout world history. Even when we wonder where the next meal might come from, there is more here in abundance. And yet we take so much of it for granted and we never seem to recognize that you are up to something bigger. I pray that we would lean in, and accept the grace that both a lack of provision and provision provides, which is an opportunity to evaluate our hearts and whether or not we love you for you or for what you can do. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.